Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Vlad Solomon, author of the book State Surveillance, Political Policing, and Counterterrorism in Britain, 1880 to 1914. Vlad, welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, Mark. Glad to be here. Well, we're glad to have you on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Sure. Um... I'm uh, based in Montreal. I'm an um, independent historian of the, the 19th century, basically. I'm uh, particularly interested in um, political history and uh, cultural history and um, how the two are intertwined. Um, and um, I'm generally looking at um, English, British, rather, and French history. There's an interesting uh, crossover in your book that, that I'm uh, that will, you'll probably illuminate as we get into it further, because as you describe in the book, what you're talking about is not just a English or British centric one, but one that you know has these definite pan uh, European uh, linkages. What was it that led you to write a book about uh, political policing in Britain during the late Victorian and Edwardian eras? Hmm. Uh, the, the book essentially grew out of my uh, doctoral dissertation. Uh, prior to that, I was uh, Looking into the um, the kind of the radical, uh, rather the anarchist movement in the United Kingdom in the in the late nineteenth century, um, and so that led me to to kind of the other side of the coin to ask myself how how the authorities perceived and understood these these radicals, uh, not not just how they understood themselves, and I, I realized that. Um, um, the only substantial contributions on, on the history of political policing in Britain had been in the kind of the, the late seventies and mid 1980s. And, uh, there, there was, uh, this, this kind of fresh batch of, uh, recently, uh, declassified, um, archival documents, uh, at the national archives at, uh, Q, um, that was just kind of sitting there and waiting to, to be explored. And, and so I thought I'd, I'd, I'd take that topic on and, uh, pursue it. It's an interesting topic to pursue because you're not just illuminating the topic for us today, but you're also addressing this conception or belief that the British had about themselves. And, and, and you reflected very nicely with that quote from Charles Dickens, this idea that, yes, you have police in Britain in, in the Victorian era, but, they, but they're concerned with, with, with common crimes. And there's this belief that the that the British have uh, that that they don't need the sort of political policing that you see in uh, places like, say, France and Italy and Russia. I was wondering if you could perhaps start us off by by explaining exactly what distinguishes the type of policing that you focused on, and maybe tell us a little bit about the the history of it in Britain prior to the period that you cover in the book. Sure. Uh, in terms of what distinguishes it, um, I think. Uh, I think political policing in, in the British Isles has 
until until the 20th century pretty much was was never very systematic it was always more or less reactive in terms of the, the various subversive radical movements that were um, active at, at that period in time uh, so in in the early 19th century uh, there were these radical movements inspired by the French Revolution um, that were uh, trying to organize in Britain, and some had revolutionary ambitions. Uh, some were connected to Irish nationalism and the uh, desire for Irish statehood. And so the, uh, the, the structures that we see emerging in terms of political policing are in response to that and um, being set up on a temporary basis with the understanding that once the danger passes... Uh, we can just sort of resume our former way of doing things and not be so aggressive and proactive. Um, that is kind of um, not necessarily unique to, to Britain, but it's somewhat different from what was happening on the continent um, in places like France and the German-speaking states where uh, more or less permanent police structures um, that were specifically uh, aimed at, at tackling radicalism um, were were set up and they they continued throughout the 19th century and um, of course into the 20th. So I think it's it's this idea that a political policing is a, is an exceptional thing. It's it's somewhat embarrassing. It's somewhat hard to control. Um, it shouldn't be made permanent. Uh, but this is largely kind of a myth, as as I um, as I grew to to understand by looking at the sources uh, in that political policing had been in, in the British Isles since, uh, you know, really almost times immemorial, you could say, but definitely documented since at least the early modern period. Of course, there are references to spies and intelligence gathering in, in Shakespeare and uh, during during the, the Stuart um, uh, monarchy um spies were routinely used to um, kind of keep the lid on the various conspiracies that were happening at the time, whether they were Republican conspiracies or um, religious, ins- religiously inspired conspiracies. There were structures in place to inform the authorities in London on what was happening in the rest of the country. And it was always um, a, the, the, the job of controlling spies throughout the realm was, was something that was very much the prerogative of the, the Secretary of State as, as, as the position was, um, as, as it existed in the early modern period. Then it kind of changed a bit and we end up with a Home Secretary in the, in the 19th century and a Foreign Secretary and other types of, of, of high-ranking ministers like that. But uh, out of these, I guess the Home Secretary retained that control over intelligence gathering and, and uh, espionage and uh, spycraft into the 19th century. I, I think you... I, I was going to say that. I, I, I like the way you describe it because you, you highlight something that, that I think you know, gets to why the British, uh, for lack of a better word, deluded themselves into thinking that there was no political policing in Britain because it had that association with uh, monarchy, with uh, with uh, you know 
tyranny and 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 was sort of seen as not the kind of thing that you wanted in the freedom embracing society that that Britain imagined itself as being in the 19th century and yet as you described that it, you know it, that it was it wasn't as though it was abandoned and and, and recovered that it was there with, with the French Revolution uh, you, you have a very uh, active Secret Service movement that that uh, other historians had written about and and that it was it, it, as you point out, it was, it was it was there, but it was it was not systematic. It was much more uh, secretive and, and irregular. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. It was it was essentially kind of the world of the uh, Scarlet Pimpernel, that type of kind of swashbuckling um, environment of, of um, kind of gentlemen spies uh, roaming the continent trying to um, save um, aristocrats from the guillotine. So it, it was very much that kind of romantic, uh, very much not bureaucratic, not institutional type of, of espionage and intelligence gathering. And it it sort of went on like that for a while until the later 19th century, essentially when uh, when this this period that, that I looked at in, in the book starts, uh, a period that kind of demanded more, um, more permanent structures, more... Um, uh, a, a more serious, I guess, um, a, approach to to tracking subversive action, to um, keeping keeping an, keeping an eye on 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 the various movements that were um, emerging at the time. Movements, especially connected with uh, Irish nationalism. I, I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate upon that. Uh, point because it, we, you are talking about a period that is distinct, and you are talking about a uh, a, a challenge uh, or maybe even a threat that uh, didn't exist before. Why was it in the eighteen seventies and in early eighteen eighties that you have this decision to go from the more irregular, uh, localized approach to the much more systematic one that is adopted by the Home Office uh, in, in 1881? I think a lot of it had to do with um, the increased militancy of Irish republicanism. So um, I talk a lot about the, the Fedians and Fenianism in the book, and that refers to essentially um, a kind of an umbrella group of various um, Irish nationalist organizations in, in the 19th century. Um some were uh, very much in favor of uh, revolutionary action and and kind of um, unleashing um, terror attacks uh, to to put it somewhat strongly but the idea was to 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 take military action against the British um, administration in Ireland and the problem really uh, intensified when um, in the later 19th century, many of these uh, many of these uh, radicals begin contemplating uh, taking action in Britain itself, with with the purpose of kind of panicking the British government and to um, essentially leaving Ireland, ideally, but at least uh, making concessions towards more autonomy and more rights for for the Irish in Ireland. Um, and so, because no, go yes, sorry, go ahead. Uh, because the police structures in place at the time, including the Metropolitan Police, which had been established in 1829, did not really have uh, the uh, the apparatus, I guess, in place to to deal with with a, an, 
a, a significant organized uh, radical organization. Um, the 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 Home Office uh, put in place certain mechanisms to to create a new a new police organization, which became the Irish branch, and then another structure which became the special branch later in the 1880s. There's this aspect uh, of your book that I, I found to be very uh, enlightening and something that is very, it's, it's one of those, th- that those elements that's hidden in plain sight. And it's this aspect of the history of the period that oftentimes is overlooked because it tends to be treated as episodes. And what you do is you uh, connect them together. And I'm talking here about the bombing campaign you described, because you you put that uh, at at the center of this consideration. It's the kind of thing where it's not as though this bombing campaign was secret or that it was uh, covered up because it was sort of thing you couldn't cover. But you show how, the way you detail it, it, it shows how, the this you know the, the you know the use of, of explosives the efforts to set bombs in various places it, it's the kind of thing that you know, reading it today in, in the early 21st century there, there there is definitely a a level of, of familiarity with it that you don't always have with certain aspects of the history of the period but the, this the idea that there is this growing threat of 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 terrorism this that uh not necessarily terrorism of the population, but this idea that there's this bombing campaign that's targeting the authorities and these bombs are going off and oftentimes injuring civilians, or sometimes they are uh, offering more of a targeted terrorist campaign. This is on top of things like the Phoenix Park murders. And you take all this together and you, you the way you present it makes it, uh, it makes it pretty clear why it is that uh, Sir William Harcourt, the Home, Home Secretary, makes this decision in 1881 to say, you know, we need to start adopting a more systematic approach to this. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's interesting that uh, he was not necessarily the, the natural choice to be taking a, an aggressive, uh, almost kind of authoritarian line on policing. He had been a, a radical earlier in his youth. He had favored uh, kind of the, the right of asylum for for. Um, political refugees coming in from France and the continent. Um, so he had been very much kind of on the left of the Liberal Party. But once um, ap- after he was made Home Secretary, he became much more alarmed by by the threat of, of Irish nationalism. And I, I think it was also a naturally kind of a panicky person prone to kind of fits as as many many of the people who worked with him and knew him personally described so that kind of influenced his decision making i think quite substantially as well because um he at, at first he he wanted to make a, a bold radical break with the past which is why he established uh, this irish branch of 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 scotland yard in 1883 and um when it was clear that that wasn't necessarily working the way that he had envisioned, um, he almost did a 180 and attempted to kind of turn turn back the, the, the clock on on this pro this process of modernizing the political police and and started favoring a more kind of um, reactive approach, um, meaning that um, you know that 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 type of policing where you just sent bobbies on the beat and um, they're there, their, their presence is known. And so would be wrongdoers are kind of intimidated by that and convinced not to 
to do their evil deeds, which of course didn't didn't really work, but it 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 had an interesting kind of um, set of consequences uh, for the political police in Britain, uh, and it, it led to a, a lot of infighting and and all sorts of um, interesting but destabilizing ultimately things. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about this Irish branch. Uh, you know, what, what, what was its place in the policing structure and, and, and who was in charge of running it and, and who was being selected to staff it? It was so it, it was um, Section B of Scotland Yard. Um, Section A being, of course, the, the regular detective branch, um, the criminal investigations department as it existed existed um, until the early 1880s. Um, Harcourt was essentially practically in charge of it. Um, there was a, a superintendent of, of this special Irish branch. Um, at first, um, someone called uh, Adolphus Williamson, who was briefly um, kind of a, um, involved in in uh, the Jack the Ripper uh, case, I think, uh, as a kind of a, a marginal figure on the periphery, but his talent as a, as a detective was was undeniable, and so he, and as as the most senior detective, he was selected to to lead the Irish branch. Um, in terms of staffing, um, it it was essentially Williamson, but with with the um, um, authorization of Harcourt, the idea was to staff it mainly with Irishmen um, who were obviously loyal to to Britain and to the idea of a, of a British Ireland. But the idea was to staff it with Irishmen because um, it it was it was thought um, that you had to have Irishmen in order to for them to investigate um, into Irish organizations and to kind of understand the mentality of of, of the Fenian um, agitators. And the staffing was not not really significant at first. It was only a handful of, of detectives, really. Uh, some of them were, were quite gifted, obviously, but it was very much a, a small um, emergency unit, so to speak. How successful were they in... Uh going after the Fenians and uh, arresting or uh, driving them out of uh, Britain? Uh, they were not super successful, ultimately, uh, but ultimately it, it, that what they were successful at was uh, gaining intelligence from, from uh, various groups that were active in, in Britain at the time. And they did this essentially through uh, spies, which was the preferred method for um, for the Home Secretary. It had been since earlier in the 19th century and, and even before that. Um, spies were not too expensive to maintain, and you could just cut them loose when, when they ceased being uh, useful. Uh, so they managed to to gather good intelligence, but in terms of taking steps to prevent attacks from happening, that did not really come to pass because, again, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about uh, the reactive model of political policing where you just kind of respond to threats and and try to 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 take some some 
um, action in response to an attack or in response to uh, a threat, but without necessarily uh, going to the root cause. So you have an approach that is adopted, and, and it, it's not as successful as it as its uh, as its envisioners hoped. And you have uh, you have this this ongoing problem. It, it would seem that all of that would suggest, and then you have as you mentioned, even hardcore turns against it. All that would suggest this is a concept that is going to have a very limited lifespan, and yet. As you go on to describe in your book, it's actually expanded in the 1890s as the uh, various governments identify additional threats that or perceived threats and and decide that they are going to take this concept of uh, of reactive political policing and use it to address those as well. Why did they stick with the idea and 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 how and, and what sort of threats were they now seeking to apply it against? I think they stuck with the idea because um, the the threats were, in their in their view, re- relentless. The attacks kept happening in the early eighteen eighties. There was a spate of of uh, bombings um, in London, especially, uh, including uh, various kind of public uh, spaces, including, of course, the the Scotland Yard headquarters itself, which was sort of humiliating for the government. Um, so because of that, there was, and and this this is something that Home Secretaries, even after Her- Harcourt um, understood that you can't really uh, turn back the time on 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 this new kind of terrorism that was emerging in the later nineteenth century, and so um, the only solution was to try to to better the political police model to try to expand the Irish branch, try to maybe alter its methods, hire new, more qualified people. But uh, the ship had pretty much sailed on uh, disbanding it, which was kind of the intent. And in, in, in the beginning, it was it was expected that once the uh, Irish threat went away, because you know, it seemed like a slight possibility for, for a while, uh, then the Irish branch would, would, would be disbanded and these people would just resume their normal detective duties. Uh, but because the uh, the threats kept multiplying, and of course in the 1890s, the organized militant anarchism becomes much more um, significant, especially in Europe, but um, because a lot of anarchists were exiled in Britain, uh, the government felt that this this was potentially a threat, maybe as important as Fenianism, and so um, the uh, the special Irish branch, uh, which which had been assembled in 1887 as a kind of an experimental unit of the most senior detectives from the Irish branch, uh, that kind of the, the special Irish the, the special branch rather sorry um, took over as the main vehicle for policing radicalism in Britain in the 1890s, and the Irish branch would just was allowed to kind of to lapse. Uh, it became kind of absorbed, in um, in by by the special branch. Now, this threat that that they perceive from 
radicalism, anarchists, uh, socialists, uh, trade unionists, it is a different one than the Fenians. And the Fenians are, are, have been uh, visibly engaging in campaigns of, of terrorism. They've been murdering public officials. They've been uh, trying to, you know, blow up, uh, you know, jails and, and, and as you mentioned, even Scotland Yard. You don't have that same type of campaign coming from a lot of people. They're, they're not even necessarily thinking about, you know, trying to attack the state. They're, they're, they're rather focusing upon, say, uh, promoting their cause or, or, or organizing workforce. Does the, the nature of, of political policing change and, uh, and, 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 uh, how, uh, and how do they see their job now if it's not necessarily to try to uh, curtail a campaign of terrorism? I think that the nature didn't really change, but the dynamics of the political police changed because in the 1880s, the Home Secretary, uh, especially William Harker, but Home Secretaries after him um, as well, were, were very much involved actively and kind of had the reins of the political police in hand and and directed what was happening in the 1890s um the the balance of, of power shifts a little bit in 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 the favor of the um the superintendent of the special branch which at the time was william melville uh his is an interesting life um there's been a biography written on him which i reference in my book as well um, he had risen up through the ranks, essentially, so he was not at all connected with any kind of um, um, social or political elites. He was uh, kind of a, a, a tenant farmer's son from Ireland, and he was Catholic. So um, you'd think that, you know, this is someone who maybe would be um, sympathetic towards Irish nationalism, but his personality was very much... Um, against any kind of radicalism. He saw a revolution everywhere. He Everything was a threat that did not support, in his mind, the status quo and the, the kind of the British way of, of, uh, of governing. And um, so he becomes kind of the de facto boss of the political police in the 1890s. And the methods that the special branch used were pretty much the same as in the 1880s. It was a matter of finding people that could be uh, debriefed for the right price, uh, occasionally finding someone to to infiltrate groups. Um, and increasingly, and this is, I guess, somewhat different from, from the 1880s, uh, detectives themselves are going undercover to infiltrate groups that are perceived as dangerous. Uh, this had been attempted in the 1880s as well, the later 1880s, when uh, um, the uh, Social uh, Democratic Federation, the Socialist Party of, of Britain at the time, um, was kept under surveillance, but also some chapters were infiltrated by police detectives because they were seen as particularly dangerous. In the 1890s, um, that happens more and more, I think. There's a there's a willingness to um, no longer just wait for something to happen, but to kind of make it happen. And um, I think the most telling example of that is the um, the Walsall case of 1892, when uh, um, a group of, of anarchists, most of whom were foreign, but they were based in in the, in the town of Walsall uh, in England, they are arrested for. Um, 
supposedly having planned uh, uh, to to manufacture a bomb and to deploy it somehow against unknown persons. Uh, it, it, it was never really specified, but the fact that they built the bomb or almost had built the bomb, uh, that was seen as the crime in itself. And the way that the police came to learn about this incident was through um, the work of paid infiltrators, not police detectives in this case, uh, just uh, kind of a, a double agent of sorts, an anarchist who actually was in the pay of, of the British police. But uh, on the whole, uh, the, the trend is towards more um, active um, operations rather than just kind of seeing what happens and then maybe trying to, to scramble for the right course of action. The 1890s is, 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 is a more, um, I guess, a, aggressive decade for, for the political police in Britain. It's interesting because to you know ties back to what we talked about in the book. It gets to this area that the British state had steered away from. You mentioned how in the pre eighteen eighty period there was a period of time where it, when one of the earlier approaches was to you know prosecute people that were engaged in it, and how very quickly uh, there rose these fears of entrapment. And, and you know, early on, with these with the with the Irish branch, there was seem to be a, a, a desire to stay away from such things, uh, such Im- implications. But now you're starting to see the, you know, the, 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 uh, the CID starting to, you know, steer back in that direction saying, you know, maybe we do need to catch these people in the hat in, 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 in the act and in, in order to make our case and do our jobs. Yeah, exactly. Uh, at the same time, I think it's important to not overstress the, um, the extent to which the special branch was looking to, concoct plots or, or sort of create these like false flag operations. There are there are certain examples that point in that direction, but on the whole, it's interesting to note that a lot of intelligence was still coming from spies and even just concerned citizens, members of the public uh, who were sending in tips. You know, um, one example for uh, is the, um, the uh, attempting, uh, attempted bombing in 1894 of the, uh, the stock exchange. Uh, debatable whether it was actually going to to go ahead, but the police came to know that that there were these couple of anarchists who were looking to have a, a bomb manufactured to potentially bomb the stock exchange. They came to learn about that from an anonymous tip off, or not necessarily anonymous, but it was a tip off from um, the owner of the foundry where the bomb was supposed to have been made or was going to be cast molded um so otherwise it's it's doubtful that they would have known that that this plot was was being hatched and so i think there's a remarkable at the same time remarkable degree of continuity with with the earlier period and that um the political police is still kind of reactive not not to the same extent but it's still not so much interested in actively uh, investing a lot of resources and s- surveilling every every little thing that happens and breaking up every potential radical group, um, there was very much an unwillingness to to deploy that th- that many resources for the political police in Britain. Unlike other countries, I think at the time, especially on, on the European continent, Russia was seen as the kind of the extreme end of. Um, of what the political police 
could do if the government was fully behind it and invested a lot of resources. And so uh, there was obviously a, a lot of hesitance in, in adopting that kind of Russian model in, in Britain. Uh, it was seen as extreme, as authoritarian, as um, tyrannical, potentially un-British at least. That, that notion of un-Britishness is one that, that, that stands out in my mind it, it, when I think back upon your book, because it, I, I thought that you, you describe these various groups that the uh, that the that the you know the special branch targets, and there seems to be this you know this underlying, for lack of a better word, uh, conservatism, that they're going after people who are, are challenging the political status quo. You have the, the Fenians, you have the, the, these political radicals, and then you get and 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 you get to the early twentieth century, and, and you, you're talking about foreigners who you know there's this related association given you know as you described already the 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 ties between you know, presence of uh, these foreign anarchists in England, and you also have the suffragists, and, and that, that was one that I, I thought was in many ways the most fascinating one because I mean, these are not people who are the same level of threat as, say, uh, anarchist bombers or Fenian bombers or Fenian assassins, and yet they're they're getting this the, you know considerable amount of attention from the special branch as though they were a. a, a a similar uh, type of, of, of threat to the status quo. Yeah, it's actually, it's very interesting to see the contrast between how um, the political police um, understood the suffragist uh, uh, threat in, as opposed to, for example, the socialist, uh, the militant labor threat. And when it came to the suffragists, I, I think the government was, was very slow to treat it as a serious political threat. Uh, there was a lot of kind of, um, you know, a very sexist attitude, really, uh, a kind of a conception of of the of the suffragists' demand as being no more than kind of female hysteria, and and so the government did its best to ignore the suffragists really until it came to the uh, the wave of of militancy that that. The, uh, the most radical suffragettes um, unleashed in, in the later 1910s and up to almost up until the the, the first day of, of the First World War, um, and, and it's really only in in the, in those final two or three years right before the First World War that the government is all of a sudden actually a little bit annoyed, genuinely annoyed with 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 the suffragettes. It, it passes the uh, Cat and Mouse Act of 1913, which was um, this act aimed at arresting the suffragettes, um, allowing the police to arrest the suffragettes for, for taking part in, in militant action, and then kind of releasing them and then rearresting them. And the idea was that, you know, you continue doing this until they tire themselves out. It was it was a very kind of, uh, I guess, a, a contemptuous view of of what the suffragettes were as a political threat, whereas the uh, the socialist militants um, were were definitely, uh, I think, regarded as much more um, dangerous, especially in a context of the years leading up to the First World War, when there was this increased uh, rivalry with Germany and and a fear that there there might be kind of a fifth column, you know, these traitors from within. Uh, looking to undermine a potential British war effort uh, should it come to that. Um, and, and because a lot of socialists were also radical pacifists, 
um, the government really did not pull any punches and, and kind of clamping down on on these activists, people like uh, Tom Mann, as, uh, as, as an example I discuss in the book. He was an, um, a syndicalist agitator, a trade unionist, who was also a, a radical socialist, later joined the um, British Communist Party. Um, and they were, they were seen as much more th- threatening, I think, because uh, the, even though radical socialism was not a, necessarily a mass movement in Britain, the way that it, it was looking to, to become in, in, on the European continent, um, in, in official circles in Whitehall, there was still fear that uh, strikes could potentially um, transform into a, a mass political movement, a mass socialist party of sorts, and then the real trouble would start. And so the idea was to, to shut them up as soon as possible. And that is something that you, I can see the rationale for you know, in, 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 a, in a, the argument that was made for it in terms of the, the challenge, you know, the disruption it poses, the, the, how it could you know, affect lives. And, and that's why, I, I, again, I, I keep returning to the suffragists because there it's, it's about pure embarrassment. It's, you, and it's, it's a fascinating one as well because it, it seems whereas they're able to, uh, you know, have informers among the anarchists, they're able to have informers, informers among the Athenians, they're able to get informers and information and intelligence from the militant uh, from, from the uh, from the socialists, as it, it, the suffragists seem to be so much uh, of a different threat that you, you describe how they, uh, they, they it's, it's one that they can't quite grasp a hold of in the same way. I mean, they could uh, they don't quite get to the the farcical point of say dressing up uh, detectives as women and trying to get them to get free. There are a lot of tantalizing things, but they, they seem to have a great deal of time trying to figure out exactly how to shut them down. It's like the the, the notion of passing like the cat and mouse law is is you know it's it's like for want of a better strategy so it's not like they can arrest them for setting off bombs and you can maybe arrest them for disturbing the peace but at the end of the day the suffragists don't seem to be deterred by this and they're they're trying to find a, a more effective way to do, to grasp the threat or the challenge it was it was definitely challenging to to infiltrate um the suffragettes because the the main suffragette organization at the time and the most Radical in a sense, the WSPU, Women's Social and Political Union, uh, led by the uh, the Pankhurst clan, Emmeline Pankhurst and and her daughters, um, especially Christabel Pankhurst played a very prominent role in in the organization, and it was very much uh, an organization that that only accepted female members. Uh, there was, I think, a one sole exception at, at one point, but it essentially was a kind of a closed shop for. For these obviously male police detectives, um, others other suffragette groups did allow um, members of both sexes, and so those uh, were were much more susceptible, I guess, to eavesdropping from um, uh, detectives or spies. Uh, but but the WSPU was definitely a, a challenge for uh, for authorities and. The only thing that they could do really was to keep raiding their uh, headquarters and, and to try to to harass them in any way possible. They cut their phone lines. They um, obviously they they jailed uh, Emmeline Pankhurst and a lot of the other leading members. And so it was just basically a, a, a war of attrition with 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 these militant suffragettes. But also ultimately, there was no real strategy for um, 
for uh, really um, deterring them from, from taking further militant action. And I think the suffragettes caught on to that because they kept pushing the ante and uh, coming up with more kind of outrageous uh, acts of militancy. Um, and it, it's really quite striking how close physically they got to to these figures of authority, including the prime minister, Prime Minister H.H. H. Asquith, his home secretary. These are people who are physically harassed, you know, um, in, 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 in the street sometimes, but, you know, uh, Asquith, for example, was harassed he, um, on a, on a trip that he took to Kent, I think in, in 1909 to play golf and kind of forget about all the political battles in London and, and the suffragists found him there and harassed them and, and his, um, associates, his friends there, uh, harassed them unrelentingly, um, leading to almost comical scenes of, of, of kind of, you know, pushing and shoving uh, in, in, in places. And uh, of course, there wasn't, there wasn't much that um, they could personally do. Obviously, it was, it was very, it, it was not going to degenerate to the point where uh, government ministers would be beating up suffragettes <laughs> themselves. That was not an option. That, that, that would have been uh, an absolute scandal and a, and a disgrace. But uh, what they could do is send in uniformed policemen, especially to break up um, suffragette uh, demonstrations. And and in those instances, all hell usually broke loose. And uh, it, it's it's quite remarkable to see the egregious amount of violence that took place at these events and and the uh, and the uh, uh, extreme measures that that the police really took to to push the suffragettes back, which included very kind of aggressive tackling. Uh, at times, uh, including against, you know, um, elderly women. And I mean, it, it, I mean, obviously they were all um, unarmed and kind of just protesters. And so they were, they were treated very violently, but at the same time, it's, it's curious to note how, how close they got to actually physically harming uh, government ministers, including the prime minister himself, which is something that the anarchists could have never hope to, to achieve, in, even in, in their wildest dreams, I think, at least in Britain. There's a final aspect to this that that you bring up near the end of your coverage of that, which is something that it's easy to, to lose sight of, which is that even at this point, we're now talking uh, a generation since the uh, Home Office uh, under Harcourt takes the step to establish a more permanent political policing. You're still talking about an incredibly tiny organization of, of uh, or incredibly tiny body of men. They're able to draw upon the resources of the Metropolitan Police in order to, uh, and, and, and policing throughout the United Kingdom in order to, uh, you know, carry out a lot of things. But you're still talking about a, a bare handful of, of, of people that are engaged with this. And I, 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 I can, I, I, I had to go back and think about how that may have been part of the frustration, which was that they were, uh, is that they, they didn't have the, 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 the muscle, if, shall we say, to, to really do this. And it also, though, points out to just how the the scale shifts when you have, as the period comes to end, this growing uh, you know, concern about espionage 
And here we're not talking about you know a scattered Irish organization or uh, a handful of impoverished anarchists. We're not talking about the threat of a foreign power and deploying all those resources. You know, a, a, the sort of foreign power that has those police agents in uh, you know and the practice with them now posing a threat of a, of a different scale. How does that change the way that the British go about this notion of high policing? And, 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 and sort of, you know, uh, it, it, not with the war, but just prior to the war. I think uh, right before the war, there's still a sense of, you know, no radical change is really needed, even though this is a new threat. Germany is definitely a much more significant existential threat as compared to uh, the vestiges of, of um, organized anarchism or kind of group peacefuls of, of Irish um, nationalists active in Britain. Uh, so this was very much a serious threat, but at the same time, the special branch remained tiny, like you said. And uh, uh, my, my impression was from, from looking at, at this later period is that they were still kind of looking to shift resources from one place to another to, to sort of try to make ends meet somehow. Um, it's really once the, the the war erupts really that's that's when all the alarm bells go off and um the uh, the the counter intelligence uh, model um the military counterintelligence model steps in and and kind of makes a clean clean sweep of of all these vestiges of of 19th century sort of uh uh patchworks uh, and and uh, and so the um the the military intelligence aspect um becomes established essentially uh whereas before it, it had been just a matter of you know increase uh, the staff of the special branch by another 10 um detectives for example and um and see if it's still needed in in a few years. Um, it it was that that kind of mindset which is, is kind of remarkable, I guess. But, but the authorities still did not want to attempt anything um, totally radical. And I think it had a lot to do with 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 the political discourse that was uh, in place at the time, even even in this late period leading right up to the war. Um, Britain still took pride in its uh, and it's liberal, liberal um, I don't want to say facade, but, but definitely a, 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 an, an idea of government that is not authoritarian, that is that does not on a massive scale spy on its citizens, that does not on a massive scale um, clamp down on, on dissent, on, a, on dissent that is just opinion and, and not uh, violent dissent. Um, but of course, the war does does change things quite significantly. And even before the war, there there had been efforts to you know move beyond the special branch and organize something at the at the war office that resembled a proper counterintelligence, military intelligence organization, which is something that Britain had not really had earlier in the nineteenth century. It was it was funny because I was reading that part, and uh, what, what I was thinking of as I was reading it, and, and is uh, how it. And, and this 
comes to mind again with your description is, is not just how the British didn't have it, but the, the, the sense that many Britons still had that they didn't need it. And, and what came to mind uh, where I made the connection was with Erskine Childress's book, The Riddle of the Sands, which is this very uh, famous early novel about espionage. And it's about, you know, the, the sort of how you they would deal with the threat. And, and in the end, it's not, the, it's, it, there's almost this undercurrent with it uh, in it of they don't need the type of professional organization that two Britons can stumble across it and 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 mm-hmm. foil it you know through that that you don't need to have it you know the sort of spy networks in place that the that the that the French or the Germans or right. the Russians would have. Yeah, exactly, and I think, I mean, this mentality did not really um, immediately die off because because the First World War. I mean, it. it I'm reminded of, uh, for example, the life and death of Colonel Blimp. This. Um, <laughs> famous wartime uh, Second World War uh, era uh, movie about uh, this this um, British uh, military officer who gets into all sorts of adventures and uh, and and mishaps uh, but it, it's it, it's very evocative of that kind of traditional uh, British fair play uh, myth or or self-image so to speak uh, that you know we don't use dirty methods we're not, we're not like those um, tyrannical um, governments in, in Germany and and France to some extent, of course, because the traditional rivalry with France. But um, I think ultimately this was very much uh, a kind of a, um, a political discourse that maybe wasn't that widespread, uh, I think, uh, in the end, because a lot of people did not actually uh, object to there being a political police of sorts, um, even in the 1880s, when when things were still very much kind of uh, stuck in that Victorian mindset of, uh, you know, Britannia triumphant, um, freeborn Englishmen and all that. And there was still this uh, acceptance amongst the general public that um, terrorist threats have to be met with, with the utmost uh, force. And... Um, um, it, it, it goes beyond just uh, preserving these uh, traditional images of, of British liberalism when, when the safety of the public is at stake, then more or less all methods are, are fair. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Sure. Uh, right now I'm uh, working on a biography of Henri Rochefort, uh, who was a um, political militant and journalist in um, 19th century France. He was also briefly exiled in London, along with uh, many other people like the anarchists that I talked about earlier. Um, He was um, someone who was influential, not just as a journalist, uh, but um, also as a a, a radical left-wing politician who... Uh, riled up a lot of people and had a very interesting life of um, constant political exile, escaping from penal colonies, uh, duels with all sorts of people. So, yeah, it's 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 a fun story, I think. Sounds like it. Uh, hopefully that uh, when you uh, complete it and it's published, uh, we can have you back on uh, the podcast to discuss it. Absolutely. I, I would love that. Vlad Solomon, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.